BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Paul Dirac, 1902 to 1984, made some of the greatest discoveries in 20th century physics, second only to Einstein. He used beautiful mathematics to reveal the fundamentals of nature, such as antimatter, and his ideas have been described as exquisitely carved marble statues falling out of the sky. Yet while there are many statues of Einstein, there are barely any of Dirac, even in his native Bristol, despite his Nobel Prize, his plaque in Westminster Abbey, and Stephen Hawking's claim that Dirac was the greatest British theoretical physicist since Newton. With me to discuss Paul Dirac's work and life are David Berman, Professor of Theoretical Physics at Queen Mary, University of London, Val Gibson, Professor of High Energy Physics at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Trinity College, and Graham Farmelow, Biographer of Dirac and Fellow at Churchill College, Cambridge. Graham Farmelow, can you tell us about Dirac's early childhood and his relationship with his parents? Yeah, well, Dirac said that he never had a childhood... Um, and what he meant by that was that uh, it was unlike uh, any uh, typical childhood that he came to know about. He was in a, an unusual family. His father was Swiss, his mother Cornish. Uh, he had two, uh, a brother and a sister. They had almost no family visitors, and the father insisted on speaking to his children only in French. Mother insisted on speaking only in English. So there was this kind of balkanisation where he would sit with his father speaking only in, uh, in French while his mother and the other two siblings were speaking only in English. This is in Bristol, though. In Bristol, he, he in Bristol. He was born, yeah, as you say, 1902 in, in, in North, North Bristol. His father was a notorious disciplinarian and he brought that... Uh, ethic, work ethic, so to speak, to his children and drove them very hard. In the case of uh, Dirac's uh, brother and sister, they turned out to be OK academics, but Dirac uh, thrived in this and uh, and and uh, did very well uh, at learning things quickly. He went to a junior school round the corner from their house, Bishop Road School. He was in the same playground as uh, Archibald Leach, later Cary Grant. Um, and he, he he was starting to shine towards the end of that period. When you come to the First World War, he went to one of the best uh, schools, public schools, public... Uh, uh, I don't mean... Um, Independent uh, day in, schools. Uh, yeah, he, 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 was, he was with everybody else, the Merchant Venturer School in the centre of, of Bristol. And that's where he shone. Uh, within a few years, he was pretty well top of the class in all technical subjects. Uh, he, uh, he was seen as unhandleable in, uh, in mathematics and physics, and he, they'd have to send him his own homework. Uh, he, he really was a, a, a star... And he, uh, but he didn't actually know what to do. So he followed, this is for his uh, university degree, so he followed his brother Felix into the, the, the subject that his father was very, uh, very keen on, which was engineering. He was one of H.G. Wells' scientific samurai, so to speak. You know, he, he wanted to get a job uh, in that technical field. And he got a first in engineering, then he immediately switched to maths at a very young age. Why did he sm- switch to maths? Well, he, uh, he'd done brilliantly in engineering, apart from ha- having uh, t- uh, terrible practical skills. But he couldn't get a job. Yeah, this was uh, in the early 1920s. Uh, and uh, he, he was uh, busy doing experiments in the basement of, of Bristol University. And one of his uh, teachers said, 
don't mess about with those fruitling experiments. You're such a talented, talented mathematician. Hitch a ride on the mathematics degree, which you can do in two years. That was absolutely critical because Dirac was a trained engineer and he was going to become a trained mathematician. And it was then that he developed this remarkable sensibility to uh, pure, beautiful ideas in, in mathematics. Why so do you he, use the word beautiful? Why did I use the word? Yes, you just did. Yeah, well, I used it because he used it. Uh, he, uh, the, the, his, his teacher, who, uh, as far as I know, he's, uh, uh, never wrote a paper, an academic paper. But in, according to Dirac, was a wonderful teacher. He thought he was the best teacher he ever had. And he was not a great academic, but he was, uh, he was extremely good at imparting uh, the idea that mathematics wasn't just, su- just a, a subject you bang your head against, but there was something uh, inevitable, uh, something that could be expressed with some something akin to the beauty you see in great poetry. And this idea seized Dirac uh, so that by the time he got to the end of that, uh, of that second degree, he was prepared to study theoretical physics. Thank you. Val Gibson, uh, what at that time, when he got to the end of theoretical physics, what was the classical view of physics which had been valid since Newton? What was it and was it under strain? So Dirac came to uh, Cambridge in 1921, and at that time, at the beginning of the, the 20th century, there was the physics was a rather mature science. There was the classical Newtonian mechanics, there was the theory of electricity and magnetism from Maxwell, and then there was this new theory as well called special relativity from Einstein. And it, everybody believed that it could, you could calculate anything. But there are a few persistent problems within experimental physics which didn't go away. Uh, did the classical view, did you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to get it, did the classical view, Newton's view, was that the one that obtained most strongly at that time? Yes, but it had been followed up in the 19th century with this theory of electricity and magnetism yeah, okay. by Maxwell, um, where actually it was the unification of two of the forces, if you like, electricity and magnetism, uh, that Maxwell actually managed to do. So there was a lot of um, interest in, in that sort of area of physics, with Faraday as well discovering electricity and so on, which was crucial at the time. So the, And there was these um, problems, these persistent problems. First of all, if you looked at just radiation coming from bodies at some ambient temperature, the prediction was that the radiation would just be unbound at low wavelengths or high frequencies. Um, and people didn't understand also the the um, energy of electrons which were coming off metals when they were heated with light, uh, and also the atom there. Nobody really understood what was happening with the atom. And at that time, all we knew about was the electron and also that the, there was an atomic nucleus, which for hydrogen would be the proton. Um, and... The problem with that, uh, that that people were grappling with, people like Bohr and and Rutherford, was that you've got a negative electron with minus one charge and a positive proton with plus one charge. Why didn't they just, why didn't the electron just spiral into the proton and we'd have no atoms and we wouldn't exist? So this was the biggest problem at the time. And Dirac declared that uh, he fell in love with, and he used words very akin to that, very unusual for him, with Einstein's theory of general relativity, which came out in 15, wasn't it, uh, 1915? It was more the special relativity, actually, that he was grappling with. He was trying... There's a relationship in special relativity which relates energy, momentum and mass of particles. And what... 
Dirac was trying to do, he was trying to describe the, the theory of the very small, which is the atom, but also include the theory of the very fast, which is the special relativity. And he wanted to put those two together. Is it possible that the engineering background he had and the mathematical studies he'd had, and then he went in for physics, these three helped him as a, as a, three, as a threesome, really? Yeah, I think he was, um, he was very prolific in, in his steps to where he was going. So in the beginning, he was doing lots of calculations, estimates, actually, which were more on the engineering side rather than the pure theory side. So, and the pure theory came in the, the 1920s, late 1920s. So if you were to tell listeners that, that there was a body of classical theory at the time, that he, he was one of those trying to be the preeminent one, set out to challenge. How would you put that better than I put it? Much better than I put it, I hope. Well, I think we really have to understand uh, the birth of something called quantum mechanics because this was the new theory that we needed. And this is the theory of the, the big guns in the field, if you like, at the time. It's the Schrodingers, it's the Heisenbergs, it's the Bohrs and it's Dirac. And he wanted to be part of this to try and explain... the the atom and the, the, the physics of the atom. So that brings us to you, David Berman, because his first paper, when he was 23, was about quantum mechanics and was, according to the, the notes from all of you, a sensation. What did he say and why was it sensational? So I, I think one has to understand a little bit about this idea of what quantum yes, mechanics please. is. So in this classical world, that was a world of certainty. <coughs> that was a world where once you knew the position... And the speed of something, you would know everything in its future. And in quantum mechanics, we abandoned that for the idea of probability. And we described instead that we accepted the uncertainty of our knowledge. And instead, the equations that we had would describe the probability of things. When you say we, did Dirac think he was part of a group? And when exactly was, is this happening? He, he was certainly part this paper of when he's so, 23. <clears throat> he was part of that group, as we've heard of, of the people like Bohr, and then crucially Schrodinger, with which he eventually shared the Nobel Prize, and Heisenberg. And what he did was take that work of Schrodinger and take that work of Heisenberg and put it on a deep mathematical footing where he related it um, to something much deeper, even in classical physics, so that then he could say that, yes, there were these ideas of the wave function of Schrodinger, yes, there was the, the operator approach of Heisenberg and these things, and then find a universal structure, a mathematical reason that was already present in classical physics, and then say, this is how quantum mechanics works. Is it possible for you to go more deeply into the word deeper for those of us who are just longing to know a bit more. So what do you mean by I went deeper into mathematics? OK, so um, often in theoretical physics, what we're about is writing down an equation. So often it's deemed to be sufficient, if you write down an equation that an experimentalist can come along and test and measure, then you might say that's OK. So that was in some sense where Planck had got to um, and where Schrodinger had got to. What Dirac did is in some sense give a mathematical reason and explanation as to the structure of that equation itself. So it's not sufficient just to say, this is the equation that we can test. But what Dirac said is that the reason why that equation is there is because it reflects a deep mathematical structure in nature. And what Dirac did was unveil 
that deep mathematical structure that was behind the equations of Schrodinger and Dirac and others. Sorry, yeah, I, no, 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 please go on. The idea, the idea of mathematics being at the heart of understanding nature was first added, was it by Galileo? I've understood the universe and it's, in, it's, in, it's, it's the language of mathematics. But let's forget about that and get on with what he found there. And words like phenomenal and sensational come up in it. So what, what did it change, that paper, for this young man? Well, I mean, I, th- I think what, what's crucial to go to is um, that there were these problems at that enormously exciting time in physics um, that we had Einstein's theory of special relativity. We had the quantum mechanics of Schrodinger. But then, when you've got these two pillars of the beginning of the 20th century that changed everything, those two pillars were contradictory. You couldn't bring them together. So what Dirac managed to do in the Dirac equation was to say, yes, I can bring together the quantum mechanics of Schrodinger and the relativistic ideas of Einstein. And that's what he managed to do in this amazing paper, which now gives what's called the Dirac equation. And then he did something even bigger and more important. That equation allowed him to describe the electron. And I think we've got to remind readers or listeners that how important the electron is. It's basically nearly all of physics at the time and, and nearly all of chemistry. And then to have an equation that um, could describe that particle, which was something of a mystery, and, and perhaps I could say a little bit why it was a mystery. I'd like to come back to that, because we, we, we're going before our horse to market mm. at the moment. I just <laughs> want to stay on this Dirac equation in a mm. simpler way, but we'll certainly okay. come back to it. Um, Graham, Graham Farmerlo, um, can we just develop the m- massive praise, wh- why people were so excited by this first paper, by this young 23, unknown 23-year-old from Cambridge, the fundamental equations of quantum mechanics? Yes, uh, it was seen as uh, the work of a great mathematician by the uh, by the uh, excellent uh, school in in Göttingen. They'd never heard of Dirac, uh, and to see this beautiful mathematical construction that seemed to give a clear correspondence between the uh, classical equations set out in a particular form with a quantum. Uh, formation was something that was completely uh, astonishing to them. But I think it's not just that paper. You say the fundamental equations of quantum mechanics was his first great paper. That is true. But very quickly, he followed up with your uh, great marble statues falling from heaven. Uh, That wasn't my phrase. No, no, the late Freeman Dyson's. Uh, It's a very good good phrase because he, until 1933, he was coming out very regularly with papers that were right at the front of the field with a kind of characteristic elegance and mathematical uh, facility. And was this picked up? Was was he netting into the other people you mentioned? Oh yes, yes, pretty quickly. Uh, 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 when he got his uh, uh, PhD, his supervisor, a great supervisor, uh, uh, wanted him to get out of Cambridge, just get out and mix a bit. And Dirac wanted to go to Göttingen, the heart of quantum mechanics, uh, 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 where it was, uh, uh, where its principal discoverers were, uh, were were working at leaving him aside. But but his uh, supervisor Fowler said, no, go to Bohr's Institute first, and then. Then go to uh, uh, to the uh, people in Göttingen. When he when he went to Copenhagen, he wrote two really great papers within twelve weeks. 
right? One of them, in one of them, he demonstrated that the uh, the, uh, the uh, approaches to quantum mechanics that David has expertly summarised, which is Heisenberg's uh, formulation of quantum mechanics and Schrodinger's, which look very different, that you could actually go between them, one back to the other. He called that paper his darling. Why did he call it that? Because he actually set out to show that those uh, those different formulations were, were, were equivalent and you could go one to the other. It's as if you went into... David's deep mathematics. Yeah, yeah, and and he actually had to bring in some new mathematics for him in order to, to do that. In a few weeks later, he introduces a, a subject that is now absolutely fundamental to fundamental physics, which is uh, called field theory. We're, we're familiar with magnetic fields, electric fields. He brought in the first quantum version of that, right? Now, people like uh, uh, like David and, and his peers, that is all over physics, and it, but it was in his, uh, in his little office working alone in Copenhagen that he started that subject. Val, Val Gibson, so we have this group working, not group, we have these persons uh, in Europe, in America and in Russia working towards the same aim. Can you just fill them out with, fill my statement out with names and, and the excitement around that time? So I think the, um, the thrust was really to try and combine quantum mechanics and special relativity. Einstein's special relativity. And for some reason, I don't know why, Einstein sort of sort of stood back from that. But Dirac really pushed forward. And he was working on other people's um, base, basic knowledge and, and theories, uh, like Schrodinger's, like Heisenberg, like the guy called Klein and Gordon, who were, were trying to put the equations down. And the thing that, um, that Dirac really did was to realize how to write an equation down which solved a big problem they had at the time which was there's two solutions to the problem one which had negative energy and one which had positive energy the problem being if you can remind us some of us slow at the back so the problem being is in einstein's special theory of relativity it's a bit like pythagoras theorem actually you've got energy and you've got momentum and you've got mass and they're related like Pythagoras' theorem. So E squared, in its simplest form, E squared is equal to P squared plus M squared. And anybody who's sold Pythagoras' theorem for a right-angled triangle will know that if you take a square root, you get two solutions. So it's like taking the square root of 16 and getting plus and minus 4. Everybody at that time was ignoring the minus solution. But Dirac, the way that he formulated his equation, he could cope with that negative solution. That brought into the picture, however, because he could not get rid of it, it brought into the picture the concept of antimatter. And this is one of the big um, predictions from his theory, was the prediction of the existence of antimatter. Now, can you tell us how, how you think he arrived at antimatter, which he didn't call antimatter at first? No, he didn't. He called it... Well, he was working to try and explain the electron, as we've, we've already heard. And he's also trying to explain the proton, so he could use the same formalism for the, the proton. Um, but he got this solution with this negative energy, and he tried to explain it away. Right? He tried to explain what, what it was. And he did it by thinking about all the energies that could possibly exist in the universe, both positive and negative. And he said that, OK, I've got all of these negative energy solutions, but they're all filled up. Right, so we live in a universe which is stable. It's okay, it's stable. We, we still exist. 
But having done that, he said, well, if you take some energy, say in light, like a photon or something, and you shine it on these negative energy solutions, then you can give them some positive energy. And it's like creating an electron with positive energy, but with positive charge. And that's the antimatter equivalent of the electron, an anti-electron, or as we will probably hear soon, something called the positron, which it got renamed to. David, um, the Dirac equation, are we, can we carry this on, please? Yeah, sure. So um, we've heard about this idea of taking a square root, right? And so I think I want to come back to this idea of a mathematical structure because to, to understand what Dirac did and how he changed our understanding of an electron, we've got to think a little bit what we mean by a square root. So we're all used to this idea of putting a little, you know, like tick sign and indicate the square root. But he did that in a much deeper mathematical way because he asked the question, are there two things that you can somehow multiply together and then to get the equations that people had before and then just take the square root by saying, you know, what is the thing that I've got to multiply together? And then he did that even a little bit further and then where previously there was this idea we've heard of a electric field. Now, that's got a, that's got a, a vector associated. So that's something with a, dire, a direction, something that points somewhere. And now you've got to ask yourself a question which Dirac asked. Can you take the square root of a vector? Something now, that's, moving. now that's, that's, that's something that's very hard for you to get your head around. But that's good that you realise it's hard to get your head around <laughs> because... That's the sort of question that Dirac could ask and actually get an answer to and then as a result make progress in physics. And so I I unashamedly say, yes, it's good to realise that you can ask this simple question, realise it's difficult, that what is the square root of a vector? And then he came up with an answer, something called a spinner. Why is it so difficult? Well, um, if if I draw a line for you on a piece of paper... And then, and then put a little arrow on it. So there you go. That's a vector. It's got a length and a direction. Now, I want you to come up with something so that when you multiply those two things together, you get that, li- you get that line and that point. You're going to be a bit stumped. <laughs> and so are many mathematicians. But um, fortunately, uh, Cartan introduced this idea of a spinner some years earlier. And then Dirac realised that that was the thing he needed to um, describe the electron. And it had a crucial property which matched up to what the experimentalists had seen. Because of its nature, it had more information in it. And in fact, it gave the electron an intrinsic quantum property, which was previously identified as something called spin. But here's the thing you've got to understand. People think when you say the spin of an electron, you imagine a little yellow ball spinning around. But Dirac immediately realised that was a problem. Because if an electron is this infinitesimal point of absolute point, Mm. it can't spin. How can a point spin? So then he said, right, I need to describe a property of this electron that looks like spin to an experimentalist, but still has the right properties so that um, it will be described in a relativistic way. And that's what the Dirac equation did. It was the square root equation of, in, of the equations around the time and the actual equation, the actual thing that the electron describes is like a square root of a vector. And it, as a result, it had these additional properties that experimentalists could measure, like spin. 
Right. Graham, Graham Farmelow, can you pick up can you pick up on that? You describe this in your notes as one of the greatest discovery in twentieth century discoveries in twentieth century physics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're referring to the Dirac equation specifically, are you there? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing that I uh, that I think uh, I would stress out of it is that in that uh, he wrote two beautiful papers on this. But what came out of that formalism that David just described is it was completely natural that by bringing quantum mechanics and relativity together, spin was inevitable. Right before, only a few years before, it was a it was a complete mystery. Right, that you had this double, uh, this duplicity, uh, not duplicity, double sidedness uh, that experimentals were seeing in the spectral lines and lights coming out of atoms. It was a puzzle. Uh, Dirac got exactly the right spin, and as well the what's called the magnetic moment, the the sense that the electron is in some sense a kind of tiny magnet. Those things just came out uh, from that equation, right, and that. Uh, uh, the, the ability to write down an equation, you can write it on the palm of your hand, where the spin of the electron and its magnetism are accurately predicted from an equation that he dreamt up in his head, right, it was, I think, one of the great uh, achievements. And, incidentally, that equation is still at the heart of the deepest theories we have of, uh, of fundamental particles today. Yeah. So I just wanted to add one more thing. So he didn't just describe the electron... But the, the uh, Dirac equation also described how the electron would interact with light. Mm. So that if you think about it, the light that now flows into your eye, you can see it because when it flows in, it will basically stimulate an electron into your optic nerve and so on. And that's described by the Dirac equation. So it's not just that it describes uh, the electron itself, but how it interacts with light and other electromagnetic fields. And that is so much of the world that we see and how we interact with the world. The, let's go back a bit to the antimatter. Were, the, um, Val, were these people, well, stick with Dirac, was Dirac aware that he was changing the view of the world, that the, the, the world now needed to be looked at in a very different, even radically different way, and that would lead, as it did, to masses and masses of changing, spreading out like a pebble going to a huge pond. Was he aware of that, or was he just doing it for the sake of doing it and thinking, ah, that works? I get the impression he was rather cautious um, in in his explanations because he tried to, in some respects, um, explain it away. And he was he, for a long while he was considering that maybe the proton was the anti-electron, um, and he did all the calculations and realised that couldn't be the case. So it took him some time um, to actually say there has to be a particle which is the same as an electron, much less in mass than the proton. It's identical to the electron, but it has this opposite charge. So I think he took a real cautious approach. He was really methodical in his his workings and his, his papers that came out at the time. Where, David, is there any idea why this creativity sprang from? I mean, a Swiss father making him speak French, a uh, good school in Bristol, and then he made engineering, and then, as it were, like Topsy, he just growed. I, I think it's very, very hard for me to imagine such genius. Um, That's the word that it, keeps coming up in all your it, notes. It is, you know, when... I, I took the opportunity for this programme, looking back at his original papers again and, and, and reading his book, and you realise that Dirac had an almost unique time, uh, an almost unique mind, uh, and especially for that time. Um, 
he could take the most abstract pieces of mathematics as we discussed these uh, obscure things called spinners uh, ideas in topology but link it all the way through to the experiment and the prediction of antiparticles and I think at the time that there were certainly pure mathematicians who could do one thing. There were certainly brilliant physicists who could have done something else. But to take that thread from the most abstract question of the square root of a vector to the prediction of an antiparticle which predicts a whole mirror world is just extraordinary. Um, I have no idea where that comes from. <laughs> Wasn't he worried that, that the anti-world, anti-matter might wipe out the matter? Because they were at loggerheads, let's put it that At some, at some point, way. people have done those, uh, have had those questions, and there's a whole interesting uh, programme to be had on antimatter and, and so on. But I think it's... Uh, I, I would say there was something else that was remarkable about him. He was very pragmatic mathematically. So although we had this immense mathematical complexity, he could actually still do something which mathematicians considered not quite right. And there's something called the Dirac Delta function, which he introduced, um, which is a brilliant thing, because it's not a function, even though he called it one. And mathematicians worried about it for years. But then, and I think this is where the engineering side comes in, because in the end, if it worked and did what he wanted it to do, he didn't worry if it didn't have, at that period of time, um, the blessing of pure mathematicians. So he had this fantastic mix of having exquisite mathematical knowledge but a pragmatism of saying, you know, if it's not quite there, but it works, I'll run with it. You want to come in, Val? Hey, I want to say something about the experiments at the time as well, because it, it went hand in hand with Dirac's formulation of, of his, his formula and, and the, the um, prediction of antimatter, that he was there in Cambridge. He was a very shy, reserved person and worked in college quite frequently um, in St John's College in Cambridge. And at the time, there was a very bumptious um, New Zealander in charge of the Cavendish Laboratory called Ernest Rutherford. Now, Ernest Rutherford didn't tolerate theorists very much, but he tolerated Dirac. Mm. And so Dirac would go, up, go to the Cavendish every, every week, have tea and buns with all of the experimentalists there, and go to the seminars and listen to the latest developments. And it's where he met somebody called Blackett, Patrick Blackett, who was tantamount, very much looking for antimatter in his new experiment that he was developing. And so he was very much involved with predicting what he might see or explaining away what he had seen and really trying to understand whether he'd seen antimatter or not. Graham, um, can we develop... Well, well let's, let's move on to magnetic uh, monopoles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... Um we, we, we've, we've been talking about this paper that came out in 1931 where he made this uh, brilliant prediction that there it must exist the, these uh, anti-electrons. But this was... I think this was Dirac's Hamlet because it was, it was something that... Uh, Full of beautiful stuff, but, but somehow it 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 it, uh, it had so many different parts to it. It didn't have that elegance that you have in the most compact Shakespeare plays, so to speak. It starts off that 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 paper with a with a manifesto that we've got to look in future to be inspired by beautiful mathematics, as he'd been. Right. He then moved on to his antimatter, and then uh, the meat of the paper was one of his most extraordinary contributions <coughs> and best remembered today. Uh, yeah, it, uh, he uh, uh, predicted uh, or showed that quantum mechanics with very slight changes can 
predict the existence of the magnetic monopole. Now, it sounds fearsome. You go back to school, everybody knows that you, you, you can't just have a north magnet, you can't just have a south, you have magnets come in pairs. He, what he demonstrated was that the, equation, the equations of basic quantum mechanics with a slight modification uh, make it uh, uh, very likely that there exists these things called magnetic monopoles. Now, in doing that, he uh, was um, uh, using very advanced mathematics that was being done simultaneously on the continent, incidentally, right? And uh, this made a deep impression on him and others because it, it uh, opened up a, 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 a door into not just the, the possibility of these, uh, these new particles, but the relevance of, of a subject called topology that David uh, mentioned before. This was the first time this subject, which is all over fundamental physics now, right? but this was the first time that it had, it had been introduced in physics. You mentioned, Val, about him going into Rutherford's uh, lion's cage there <laughs> in, in the Cavendish. Um, he led a, we might call it eccentric, but that would be diminishing in a way. He, he led a solitary interest. Can you give us, give us a, some idea of the life he led? The I daily think that's life, probably I mean, more a question for uh, Graham, actually. Okay, Graham. <laughs> Well, I mean, well, briefly, I mean, well, very briefly, Dirac was a one-off, right? Uh, uh, Niels Bohr in Cape Copenhagen said he was the, Dirac was the strangest man ever to visit his institute. That's saying something, if you know theoretical physicists, right? When he was there, he he apparently had three phrases: yes, no, and I don't know. He was extremely taciturn, and he lived an extremely regular existence, almost like an Immanuel Kant of, of, of physics. He would work five days a week. Uh, on Saturday, he would be uh, doing technical uh, um, uh, projects of his. On Sunday, he would go for his walk, and it was the same every single week. Right, so he was seen uh, quite clearly as seen as an oddity, and something picking up as uh, Melvin that you, you mentioned earlier on about the reception in Germany. We know from uh, from the court of Einstein that was there that they really did regard him as a very unusual animal that because he was using this unusual math. He had this engineer's sensibility and the sensibility of a theoretical physicist. And they thought this was decidedly odd. It wasn't the Germanic tradition of theoretical physics. So it is quite fair to say that Dirac was an outsider, right? And in every sense, he was not somebody who could be regarded as a typical theoretician. Would you agree with that, Val? I, I agree, mm. yeah. There's a nice story, actually. Ah. With, in 1974, he went... 1972, actually, I think. He went to um, Florida State University, Tallahassee. So that's where he ended his life. And before he left, he... Um, in Cambridge, every don has a black gown. And he had his own black gown. And he wrote a little note on it saying... Um, Professor Dirac's gown, um, please ask the master to look after this for me uh, until my return. And he never did return, but his gown is still there in the master's lodge in St John's College waiting for him. He's full of stories, isn't he? I mean, like people, somebody at the high table asked him where he was going in his holidays, and three day, three courses later, having said nothing, he turned and said, "Why do you want to know?" <laughs> that's that's really important. His literal mindedness. It, he, for him, he didn't mean to be rude. Mm. Right, he simply did not understand why someone would be interested in that. He didn't have these uh, the, uh, the the natural way that, w that most people have of taking a natural interest in other people's uh, uh, comings and goings. David, you 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 stalled at uh, entering into a discussion of uh, Dirac's genius, and uh, we all. I mean, you said you 
it was you didn't say it was beyond you but you said it was something so extraordinary um did you do you think that that extraordinariness came from his nature as much as from his learning yeah so it it's always hard to know because it, you can't do the experiment of uh, if I put someone with the same learning of Dirac and then see how they respond. Mm. But I think at this level, as, as I say, this level of genius, there's always something unique. And and so I think it was there was something intrinsic within the man to be able to take what he did and achieve what he managed to do. Is this connected with his monosyllabic... Uh, uh, existence in, in in the way of conversation. I mean, yes and no. Those two words at a high table dinner were a big conversation for him, weren't they? <laughs> I, I I think there's something that is uh, there about the idea of focus. That when you decide that you're going to combine special relativity with quantum mechanics, that's a lot to think about. And I suspect that um, he had an enormous focus. And as a result, maybe he just decided he wasn't that interested in small talk. The uh, Graham, Graham Palmolo, um, Einstein admired him. He did. Enormously, didn't he, and praised him above the skies. But it's, it's been suggested that Dirac is more modern. Uh, than Einstein. Mm -hmm. Is that suggestion worth taking seriously? I think it is. Uh, I, I don't want to look at the rankings. I mean, I personally uh, think that you know Einstein was a, com a complete phenomenon. I don't want to uh, belittle him in any way. Uh, but what I think makes uh, uh, Dirac uh, um, look so modern uh, today is, first of all, uh, he was equally happy with, uh, with special relativity and uh, rel uh, and uh, quantum mechanics, whereas Einstein was ver uh, did not regard quantum mechanics as a uh, as a truly fundamental theory, um, and Dirac had this very strong faith that if you pursued beautiful mathematics, it would take you into areas that w that would be of uh, of interest. Now, uh, it's not fair to say that uh, that Einstein had no inkling of this, but Dirac was a much better mathematician than Einstein. I mean, Einstein had fantastic curiosity and peerless ability, but uh, 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 but. Uh, Dirac was a very able uh, mathematician and that attitude towards mathematics as something that would take you by the hand and lead you into productive pastures for research is something that is very modern. Would you agree with that, David? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now uh, a lot of the ways that we do theoretical physics is following Dirac's approach. Uh, you can ask a very abstract mathematical question and then see where that leads into the physical world. So in some sense, Dirac led the way, and we all follow in that approach of asking those mathematical questions. And then intrinsic to this, though, is a belief that behind nature are deep mathematical structures, yeah. Yeah. and that finding those mathematical structures will tell us what nature is. Yeah. Well, um, is it possible to it's possible to ask the question, is it possible to answer the question that uh, he changed the what he did change our understanding of the world? I think that's true. He um, there's not just this equation he wrote down. There's, if you look at any good internet encyclopedia, you'll find a list as long as your arm of everything that he he did. All the conjectures, all the theorems, all the equations, everything. And I've never seen a list like that before. And even though we concentrated on his equation and the the, the explanation of what matter and antimatter uh, do. Um, 
it still holds today. We still use it. All the fundamental particles that we know about, we now know that the proton is made of quarks. Um, we know that there's heavier electrons called muons or taus. Uh, we know about all the force-carrying particles, the quantum field theories and so on. That's all down to Dirac. And it really is the the fundamentals of our theory of everything that we know about, of the fundamental particles and the forces of nature. Following up that legacy idea, David, um, why is it that compared with Einstein, even Schrodinger and Niels Bohr, and you know what I would mm. ask, why is he so unknown? I, I think this programme perhaps explains a little bit why. In having those abstract ideas of having brought in ideas of topology, of spinners, and all of these things, it's just very hard to explain to the general public what is he's done. When Einstein came up with relativity, there were trains with rulers and clocks and all of these things which then made that popular science then used to explain the ideas of relativity. And although relativity is hard... In some way, it's now permeated through because there's been all these attempts over the years. Dirac's work, although underpinning all of modern physics, is just so hard to explain because of its reliance on mathematics and mathematical structures. So I think ultimately, it's not just he had a bad publicist. It's the fact that <laughs> what he managed to do is bring in that abstraction of mathematics. And that's why it's so hard to make popular. Would you agree with that, Graham? Yes, uh, I do. It's worth saying that his friend and competitor, uh, uh, Werner Heisenberg, described in the 1970s the uh, antimatter revolution as the biggest of all big jumps in 20th century physics. Now, that's saying something to compliment uh, Dirac like that. Uh, uh, and we just take it for granted now. We think of the beginning of the universe having equal amounts of matter and antimatter. This was conjured up inside the head of this guy. He didn't have any experimental clues on this. So this cerebral approach to uh, theoretical physics, I, th I, I think he's, uh, he, he characterises that better than almost anybody else. Well, thank you very much. That was a run for your money. <laughs> thank you very much, Graham Palmerlow, Val Gibson, David Berman. Next week, it's the Covenanters, the Scottish Presbyterians, who captured Charles I as they aimed to complete the Protestant Reformation in Britain. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. <laughs> what did you want to talk about that you didn't talk I'm about? I'm surprised none of us said his equation. I mean, it's as elegant as Mozart's music. I, gamma, d, psi equals m, psi. I don't need to explain to you what those mean. It's just so elegant. It needs a lot of unpacking, but you're, of course, completely right. But... <laughs> and it's on, in the plaque in Westminster Abbey as well. So if it anybody is. would like to go used to be them. the only one until Hawking came along and they put his equation on there. So, uh... Yeah. I mean, I, I would have loved to actually have explained how he constructed the monopole <laughs> mm -hmm. using topology. And that, that led to the fact that... Well, you've that got time now. Why didn't you do it now for us? Now? <laughs> enough, enough people are listening? I'll have a go at, at, at topology and something that goes on. We've spoken about topology, so what is it? It's this thing that's most uh, easiest exemplified with a Mobius strip. So if you just take a cylinder, that's a piece of paper that you bring round, and that's fine, you stick it together. A Mobius strip, you take it round, you put a twist in, and then stick it together. Now, at that point... If you just look at any little bit of that strip, you can't tell the difference between a cylinder or a Mobius strip. You need to go all the way around to realise there's a twist in it. 
So the idea of topology is it classifies that thing of you can only see it by going all the way around. If you just look in your little local neighbourhood, you can't tell the difference. And what Dirac realised is that a lot of the laws of physics were written in those little local neighbourhoods around, and nobody asked the question, can we get something different by how we glue together these things on literally the size of the universe? And that was how we managed to construct a monopole, was by putting twists in the electric potential and uh and it's not located at any point the monopole is but that twist is like the is like the twist of the mobius strip you only see it by going all the way around and then you see there's a twist there if you just look close you can't see i'll tell you one thing i i don't know if that helps anyone Bravo. <laughs> One thing I, I, I wish we'd uh, uh, mentioned, that the, the epiphany that made Dirac a theoretical physicist was uh, the uh, amazing amount of publicity that Einstein got in 1919 when his theory of gravity uh, was, uh, had, had the endorsement of experiment and became a worldwide sensation. Dirac was an engineering student there and it captured his imagination and heart right? That is when this engineering student says, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in being a theoretical physicist. What does that mean? We should perhaps have said this too. This means there is an order to the universe and that we can discover that order through mathematical equations. That's what he wanted to do. What are the equations? That was his constant uh, refrain when, when talking to people about the field. I would like to say some more about what was going on, what's currently going on in the field of research experimentally. So I've just come back from CERN, and the other day I was walking around the antimatter factory there, and we we can create antimatter in in hundreds of anti anti hydrogen, and we can measure the spectrum like we have the spectrum in hydrogen to see if they agree, and we can drop anti hydrogen to see whether it goes down or whether it goes up. And all of these measurements are currently being made. And in the Large Hadron Collider as well at CERN, we make matter and antimatter in a controlled way and recreating the beginning of the universe and just trying to understand why we live in a universe made of matter now and not antimatter. So these questions are still there. We're still trying to answer, answer them. So I don't say something about him, uh, his personality, because for for a long time people just thought he was he was really a very cold fish, had absolutely no interests apart from mathematics and physics. This is not true. Uh, he just didn't talk about them. When he was in Florida, when he was in uh, uh, retirement, uh, he would go to concerts. He would read. He, uh, he took I think he took three years over War and Peace. Uh, he absolutely loved Two Thousand and One: A Space Odyssey. His favourite singer was Cher. It was on her show that he really got to know Sting and Elton John. I mean, this was not a complete uh, philistine uh, uh, in the arts. So that, that I think this was an important thing to uh, to, to realise. He was actually a uh, he, he was not a one dimensional man as he was cruelly described, but he was three dimensional. Except that the, what the world saw was the one dimension of this very silent figure that was walking through the corridors of academia. Yeah, I mean, I can I can add also uh, about his book. So he he's got this oh, book yeah. called Principles of Quantum Mechanics. Yeah, great book. And I I remember when I was first given that and uh, and, and read that in in Manchester, and it was it was touching almost. Yeah. Now, very clearly, no one can ever learn quantum mechanics from Dirac. <laughs> 
Um, what you do is you learn quantum mechanics from any number of sources, uh, and then you think you've understood quantum mechanics, and then you read Dirac's book. And then you realise you've not understood quantum mechanics, <laughs> and Dirac understood quantum mechanics, and then you're amazed. Yeah. And and I still and and I think it's an amazing to have a book that is still printed and still yep. read by every theoretical mm. physicist from that mm. period. And it's almost unique in that fact. Yeah. Nobody goes back to Einstein's works in relativity because you go, you know what, we've got now probably greater geometric in- insight than Einstein had at the time mm. in, in the sense of we've all understood that math better. Um, but in terms of Dirac... There's nothing better than that book. Yeah, can I, just, I? I completely agree. But it's really worth stressing that when he wrote that book, it was published like in 1930. Quantum mechanics was still a work in progress. It was ha- stuff happening all over the place. Remember Dirac, Heisenberg, Schrödinger, uh, Bohr, Jordan, all these people here. They were all doing bits of stuff, and, mm. and it wasn't clear how it would all fit together. And what this guy does, he writes this. Uh, this it's almost poetry. You know yes. what I mean? And. Yes. Even his competitors and people that didn't like his style thought this is a yeah. magisterial synthesis of that subject. And that's why, as David said, it, uh, and I might say it also stimulated the next generation of physicists yeah. from Feynman, uh, Julian Schwinger, Sinatira, Tomonaga. These people, were, yeah. were, that was their Bible. So it was yeah, yeah, ter- yeah. tremendously influential. Yeah. I mean, is it still, you went, you went, <clears throat> when you read it first, you couldn't understand it. Could you, can you still not understand it when you read it? No, I mean, I would say I could understand it now. But, <laughs> but it was, but I'm going to use the word deep again. It, it, it's, it brings out and constructs things in a very deep way. What's beautiful as well is actually how wordy it is. Mm. So in the first few chapters, it, for, you know, for a theoretical physics book, we, we like our equations. And what Dirac did was replace equations with concepts. And you, you, you read those first few chapters mm. and you go, this is all, this is literature. <laughs> um, and, but it's, a, it's, a, it's the fact that he's got such a deep understanding of the concepts in quantum mechanics mm. that the old idea of shut up and calculate, which is often what theoretical physics said, that's what you're taught as an undergraduate. Take the Schrodinger equation, calculate some energy. And you go, oh, I've understood quantum mechanics now. What Dirac said is, no, you've not. There's something much deeper behind it, and that's what his book brought out. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much, Spiddy. This well, this is part of the programme. Our producer's pacing outside to come in and make an offer you can't refuse. But even so, we t- here he is, Simon. <laughs> you produced that, didn't you? Do you want tea or coffee? No, tea, please. Tea, that'd be lovely. Tea. Two teas, Melvin. Tea, yeah, tea. Three teas. Thank you very much. That was terrific. In our time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Hi everyone, Russell Kane here. I've got just a few seconds to tell you about Evil Genius, our hit podcast, two and a half million downloads in 2019, top 10, where we take people from history, Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher, John Lennon, and detonate fact bombs around their reputations. It's stuff you don't want to know, but you really do want to know. At the end of a lively debate, my panel of esteemed guests, read banging comedians, all have to vote evil or genius. There's no grey area. This is cancel culture turned into an innovative format. Subscribe to Evil Genius on BBC Sounds now.